today, right? <laughs> It'll be obvious from the first. No, I, I, don't, I don't take attendance every class, just now and again, just to kind of get a reality check in this course, which is all about fiction, except in Plato. I assume the people who aren't here are in the realm of the forms, the realm that you get to in dreams. Does that make them ideal people? Um, ideal for what would be the question. Yeah. All right. Um, we'll s let's start with Dante. Did people, I mean, I know you're working on your papers, and in a way it was insane for me to um, have both papers. I mean, it actually wasn't insane for me to do the syllabus the way I did, which was to have your paper due at the end of Virgil um, rather than um, the insane um, extension that I gave you, which made your paper due at the beginning of Dante. That was ridiculous of me, but I did it. Um, but I'm still hoping that people actually did the reading. There are two ways you, you can kind of nod if you did and kind of look at your feet if you didn't. Wait, say that again? Uh-huh. All right. Okay. Um, there are versions on the web. Um, the... Uh, probably the best uncopyrighted um, Dante that is that you can get kind of legally on the web. I mean, it's all legal for you, but that is legally posted on the web um, is Longfellow's translation, but Longfellow's translation is also pretty hard. It's Yeah, it's our Longfellow, the one who, who lived in Cambridge. So he translated uh, The Divine Comedy, and it's actually um, a, a pretty good... Um, highly stylized and poetic translation. Uh, Bert taught it last year. He taught Longfellow's translation. Um, I thought I told I told him I thought he was making a mistake to try to do it, but I think he thought it, he thought it went okay. Um, but uh, so you can it is findable. Um, versions of it are findable on the web. Um, all right. They are basically I would say that there are kind of two ways that you can read Dante, especially if you're reading it for the first time. Um, one is fast and one is slow, um, and I don't think you have time to read it slowly, but if you read it fast, you won't get very much out of it. Um, so Dante is uh, um, tricky, but just, tr just tricky from, a, from the point of view of reading it the first time, and what we're going to do in this class is look at a couple of... Um, um, central moments in the Inferno, the Purgatorio, the Paradiso. You know, more than a couple, but um, we're not going to be able to give the um, give these works anything like the consecutive attention that we've been giving Homer and Virgil and. Um, it might be a little bit more like reading Ovid. That is, that what Dante is chock full of, um, every um, verse, every canto in Dante, is full of incident, and those incidents are strung along a general narrative the way they are in Ovid. Um, and that narrative is both um, plot and moral, that is, and, phil and philosophical, all three of those things. That is, that Dante is doing... Um, a story which has a plot, and the plot is, in some sense, you could call it an Odyssean plot or a Virgilian plot, which is a plot of travel. Um, they, um, 
um, once one, one of the truisms about Hollywood is there are only really two kinds of movies, two movie plots, and one is that a person goes on a journey and the other is a stranger comes to town. Um, in a way, Dante is both. Um, Dante goes on a journey and Virgil comes to town, um, that town being Florence. Um, Florence, which then kind of expands to include the whole world. Um, but the story is a story of a journey. And um, the journey is um, the journey that Percy Bysshe Shelley will call the wondrous story um, how all things are transfigured except love. And it's the story of one whom love led serene through profoundest hell and to all glory. Um, so Dante, the story is the story of Dante's journey from outside the gates of hell down through the center of the earth the actual center of the earth um, the sort of thing that you will find later in Jules Verne and that Jules Verne is actually thinking of when he writes Journey to the Center of the Earth um, all the way to the center of the earth and back to the other side of the earth up to reascend to quote um, Virgil, the descent is the the descent is easy. The ascent is hard. Um, they reascend from the center of the earth up the mountain of purgatory and then into the heavens, um, where you will find paradise. So that journey goes essentially from Florence through the center of the earth to the Antipodes. Do people know what Antipodes means? So the Antipodes are you'll that's a word you'll now notice. Um, the definition of the Antipodes is if you drew a line from wherever you are through the center of the earth, it's where you would come out on the other side. Um, so there's, for every point on earth, there's one antipodal point. Um, it's not China for us, um, although that's, it's, it's always imagined to be China, but it isn't. Um, so they, so Dante and his guide Virgil go through the center of the earth. Um, where they pass the worm that pierces the center of the universe. That's what um, the last figure that they meet in hell is known as the worm, or is called the worm that pierces the center of the universe. Um, they reascend at the antipodes um, of where they enter. That is, in fact, the antipodes of Jerusalem. They get to the mountain of purgatory. Um, they climb that mountain, and that eventually gets Dante, but not Virgil, into paradise, and he ascends the various levels of paradise. So the ascent, the ascent in the Inferno is an ascent downward from level to level to level, down through nine levels to the very center of the earth. Um, the ascent up in paradise is upwards through the nine um, spheres of heaven. Um, up to the very um, climax or apex of heaven. Um, that's the journey that Dante takes. He takes that journey because he's in trouble. Um, again, you could say that if Hollywood gives you two basic plots for all movies, and they're, they're always X number of basic plots, usually a prime number, um, seven basic plots, 13 basic plots, you can go on Amazon and find books that are N basic plots, but N will almost always be prime. It's interesting. Um, if um, Hollywood says that there are two basic plots, there's also, um, you could say, one basic plot of all literature, which is a person in trouble. And that's what this 
um, is also about a person in trouble. That person is Dante himself. He's in trouble, but Beatrice um, takes pity on him and tries to get him sufficiently out of trouble that he won't end up in hell. Um, so the reason for this journey is that Beatrice takes pity on him and um, attempts to give him the knowledge that he needs to get him out of trouble. Now, as you'll see when we start Purgatorio, the, he do, he's not so much out of trouble that it's all fine. What will happen to him is that he will um, hope and, and he will be confident at the end of the Divine Comedy that he will be able after his death to go to purgatory rather than to hell. Um, so he doesn't imagine that he will die and go straight to heaven, but he imagines that he will have learned enough that he will die and not go straight to hell when he dies. Um, so just so you know, the three... Um, do people understand what the three different realms of the afterlife that the Divine Comedy um, is referring to, what they are? So hell is the obvious one. You're nodding, so hell um, is... Hell is the place sinners go. Okay, hell is the place that sinners go. What about... Um, no, it's not limbo. Well, okay, so limbo is at the is at the outskirts of hell. It's limbo, by the way, no longer exists according to the Catholic Church. About three years ago, <laughs> no, really, three years ago, they revisited the doctrine of limbo and they thought, no, actually, there is no limbo. Um, so, so um, a whole lot of games and reggae songs have now been ruled out by the Catholic Church. So, purgatory is a place where souls purge themselves in their way to heaven. Yes. And I think, I'm not sure, but this is the place where um, most people, eh, according to the fate, end up. Like, most people don't end up in hell, but most people end up in purgatory. According to, according to Catholicism? Depends who you talk to. And, uh, paradise. Paradise <laughs> is good. Yeah, it's the, paradise in Dante is not the same paradise as paradise in Milton, where what Milton means by paradise is Eden. Um, not heaven, but Eden. Um, Dante calls this the earthly paradise, and you will see it. You will, we will come upon it in Purgatorio. Um, but Paradiso in Dante is what Milton calls heaven, and um, in general, what religion calls heaven. Um, paradise is a slippery concept in general. That is, some people use it to mean Eden. Some people use it to mean heaven. Um, some people think that's fine to use them to mean both because they're both connected to each other. Dante will connect them a little bit, but um, the Garden of Eden and the Earthly Paradise doesn't look at all like Paradise in Heaven, um, which, which, is, which is really, really stunning, um, what Dante does in Heaven. But yeah, the, so the basic idea is that if you're evil, you go to Hell. Um, if you're evil but savable, then you go to purgatory where you are punished for all the crimes you've done on earth. Um, it's what the ghost in Hamlet, Hamlet is another kind of, Hamlet and the Bible are sort of, are, are the ghosts of this class. Um, we refer to them and talk about them even though we're not reading them as things that are part of our cultural heritage to which these things are alluding or um, 
to it or um, alluded to by Hamlet in the Bible. Um, the ghost in Hamlet, Hamlet's father says that he is confined in the, that during the days he's confined in fires to purge the gross deeds that he did in his days of nature. That is, the ghost in Hamlet tells Hamlet that he is in purgatory for all the sins that he's committed. The idea of purgatory is that it's purgation of sins, that, that in purgatory you are punished for the sins that you've committed, but that punishment has a corrective quality for the person being punished. Um, yeah? There's no way out. Sorry? It's punishment for the sake of punishment. Um, the I it's I'm exaggerating, but only a tiny bit, which is that one of the things that um, Dante and Virgil talk to people about is what's called the harrowing of hell. That is to say that when that that um, uh, they're in hell, people are remembering an earthquake that took place 1,300 years before and, some, and, and a kind of war that occurred in hell, a very quick battle or fight that occurred in hell. And what that was was, um, again, according to Catholic um, tradition, after, um, after Jesus was crucified and before he returned to heaven, so he gets crucified on a Friday. Do people know this enough about Easter, why it's Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Um, all right, so just basically it's the story of Jesus' crucifixion is that he's um, crucified on a Friday, um, and that Friday is known as Good Friday. Um, after he dies, he's put in the tomb, and then on Sunday he is resurrected. He comes back to life. And the question is, so what was God, because Jesus is one of, especially for Dante, not for Milton, but for Dante and for most Christian doctrine, Jesus is um, one of the three persons of the Trinity um, that, that is, say, God, um, that um, uh, he, um, in those, in that time between noon Friday and 9 a.m. Sunday, which are, which are the standard times, he's crucified at 9 a.m., he dies at noon, and he's resurrected at 9 a.m. on Sunday. In that time, he went down to hell to free certain virtuous pagans. That is, um, people who were not saved by the gospel, um, which is Christian doctrine. But if you don't know about and don't believe in and haven't been baptized in um, the Christian faith, you will not be saved. However, he does save certain virtuous people who were before him and who, through no fault of their own, um, did not know the truth of Christianity. And that's known as the harrowing of hell. That is, he goes down to hell and he brings some people back. Um, those are the only figures who are saved from hell itself. Um, the harrowing of hell you will recognize, perhaps, as another version um, of the Orpheus and Eurydice story. Um, of the Alcestis and Admetus story of Hercules bringing people back from the dead, of Orpheus almost bringing people back from the dead, almost bringing Eurydice back from the dead. Um, so the idea that someone would descend to the underworld and bring back 
some of the dead, bring them back to life. Um, it's also in His Dark Materials. Lyra does it. Um, that idea of a descent into the underworld and the bringing back of um, those who are dead into life, um, you'll find that in the story of the Harrowing of Hell as well. But that's the only exception to the rule. Um, and the basic rule is if you're sent to hell, that's where you are. And, and it's not going to get any better. And in fact, it turns out that it's going to get worse. That is, that it's going to get worse after the last judgment, at which point hell will be sealed shut. And when it's sealed shut, it's going to be even worse than it is now. And as you'll see, it gets pretty bad down there. Um, those in purgatory, the difference between those in hell and those in purgatory, um, there are several differences. One is that those in purgatory? Well, in a way, these are the, these these two differences are the same are two ways of saying the same thing. Those in purgatory will eventually make it to paradise. Um, some already have. Um, some are on their way. Um, but if you are sent to purgatory, then what you have to do is make up for your sins on earth. And once you have done that, once you've been punished enough you will get to go to paradise. So if you're in purgatory, if when you die you find yourself in purgatory, um, your main, um, I predict, that for those of you for whom that happens, your <laughs> main reaction will be relief. That relief will be followed by um, unhappiness because you're going to go through a lot of punishment. But still, your main reaction will be one of relief. Um, it's like getting into college. You're going to have to work your ass off in purgatory, but you got in. Um, and, that's, and so relief is the primary feeling that people will have um, getting into purgatory. It is, you could say, the primary feeling that people in Dante have about being there. Um, and it's really followed by punishment but punishment that um, is finite and that um, people learn to embrace because that punishment is also cleansing or purging. Um, and then paradise is great, um, but there are also degrees of paradise. And um, those degrees of paradise are, um, in a way, the hardest and most um, and deepest thing that you'll find in Dante. Um, why there would be degrees of paradise and how you can um, give paradise, um, imagine paradise as getting better and better, more and more amazing, even though even the lowest level of paradise is already paradise. That's um, what the last, that's what Paradiso is about. Um, I used the word correction a minute ago um, about what purgatory is about. Purgatory corrects sinners. That is to say, if you're a sinner, then what happens in purgatory in your being purged and cleansed is that you're also being changed. Um, purgatory has, um, uh, has as its primary dynamic um, the idea that what happens to you in purgatory changes you for the better, corrects what's wrong with you, straightens you out, um, to use some of, to, to use um, uh, proverbial language for punishment or correction. 
Um, what that means then is that people in purgatory move. Um, purgatory is the place of motion. Um, and in a way that shows why it's appropriate and also central that Dante, um, at the end of the poem, is set to go to purgatory when he dies. This poem is about his motion before he dies through all three regions of the afterlife. He can move. Um, Virgil can move also, but only temporarily, only while he's guiding Dante. But Dante is a figure whose, um, whose journey through the afterlife is a journey in which he can see all of it. Um, no one else that he meets actually can see all of it. Beatrice knows about all of it. God knows about all of it. Um, Virgil knows about all of Inferno or goes through all of Inferno and most of Purgatorio, um, but Dante moves through all of it. But that idea of motion, that's the place of Purgatory. You start at the bottom and you climb up the Purgatorial mountain till you get at the top. If you go to hell, you are placed in one of the circles, pure and simple. Do people remember um, how the circle um, is determined that you're placed in? Yeah. Well, I was just wondering some of the levels. Yeah, but do you remember how people people are judged as they get into hell? Yeah. Yeah, but how do you find out what circle you're going to? Leios tells you. Yeah, and how does he do it? Um, yeah, he wraps his tail around himself, and the number of times the tail is wrapped around him tells you what circle you're going to. Um, and then you're put there. You're slotted in your circle forever. So in hell... People are in their circle, and that's where they are. And part of it is that there's that the only companions they have are the are those who are in the same circle as they are. Um, in purgatory, you move up from level to level. In paradise, you're also slotted in the level of paradise to which you go, um, and you stay there forever. So purgatory is the is the book of. Um, the motion of souls upwards, upwards. Um, Inferno and Paradiso are books about um, how things will be forever. They're um, so, so they're um, not dynamic, but um, but eternal, um, architectural, architectonic. Um, Inferno and Purgatorio share the fact that they're about punishment. And, however, there are two different kinds of punishment or correction um, that the two regions um, are stand for. So um, you know that, that prisons are called houses of correction, and you may think that that's some politically correct um, designation for what prisons are. You know, they're prisons, damn it, they're for punishment, they're not for correction. That's what um, Karl Rove might say. Um, it's actually a very old use of the word correction. It's not a it's not a PC in any way use of the word correction. Um, correction in the idea of a house of correction is that what crime is is making the world um, is is a, is a crime against justice. That justice is the correct disposition of things in the world, um, things in the universe. Justice is how things should be. When someone commits a crime. They derail justice, and what's corrected in a house of correction is injustice, not the criminal, but the fact that the world has been um, 
has been made unjust. So the correction is a systemic correction that a house of correction um, engages in. It's a correction of the world to return it to justice through punishment. So punishment is the penalty which makes, which reestablishes justice. So punishment on that, so there, there are basically, there are actually, I think the Supreme Court has about five definitions of punishment um, that, that it's spelled out um, in America um, to describe what it is that criminal law and criminal penalty aims at. Um, this is, there's a long theory or a long history or a long philosophy about what punishment is. But we could base, and there's long, there are long philosophical discourses about what justice is and the relationship of justice and punishment. We could basically say, though, that there are um, two main um, uh, ideas in the, that, that are, inform our idea of punishment, inform the, the notion of what punishment is. One is, you could almost say, the parental idea, that punishment is the reason your parents punish you is so that you learn and you don't do it again and you become a better person. Um, so that's punishment almost as communicative. It's you're being punished in order for you to learn a lesson. The other idea of punishment, which is um, finds its full fruition in the death penalty, is that you're being punished in order to reestablish justice. It's not in order to teach you a lesson. No one cares if you're dead, whether you've learned the lesson or not. Um, so punishment, which takes the form of execution as its, as its sort of um, uh, clearest case, is punishment which is supposed to establish justice for those who see the punishment done. That is, when you see um, some horrendous murderer um, executed, when Tim Timothy McVeigh gets executed, um, what you're not thinking is, or what you shouldn't be thinking is, well, that'll teach him. What you should be thinking is he deserved it, and it would have been terrible for the um, families and parents of the people that he killed, and terrible for society as a whole, um, to see him get away with it in any way. Um, he deserved to die because of what he did. So those two ideas of punishment, one is, you could say, social or worldly or um, universal, which is to reestablish insofar as it's possible, and for God it's completely possible, to re-establish justice, that's an idea of punishment that's uninterested in its purest form, in the personal experience of the person being punished. Now, there is no pure form of that punishment on earth. We still want, we still want Timothy McVeigh um, to feel like he deserved it. It's not just enough that he be executed. We also want him to think, oh my God, and we want him to, to, to wish that he had never done these things. But that's just because there is no pure idea of punishment among human beings. But the philosophical idea of punishment is, um, is correct the imbalance in the universe 
the philosophical idea of the death penalty is correct the imbalance in the universe. It doesn't matter what he thinks. And that's why, for people who are really um, cold about the application of the death penalty, and I don't want to make that word sound judgmental in any way, but people who are really cold about it, um, the question of remorse on the part of the killer is of no interest whatever. Some killers experience very great remorse, and some killers are defiant to the end, like McVeigh. Um, and if you, are, if you are being philosophically strict about this, it shouldn't matter to you whether they show remorse or defiance. That's not the issue. Don't, you don't care at all how they feel. All you care is that justice be reestablished, and justice requires an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We talked about this when we talked about um, the, the, what Achilles says to Hector. When Hector says, look, um, one of us is going to kill the other. Let's, however, make this deal that whoever wins will allow um, the body of the other person to be given back to his people. And remember Achilles' response? Yeah, there are no, there are no, there are no truces between men and lions. Um, so a pure idea of justice is like, um, I don't know if you guys read about the, the rabid goat that killed a hiker uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so it's kind of, it's, it's shocking and horrible. But the pure idea of justice is, so this goat kills a hiker, you shoot the goat. You don't say to the goat, how could you do this terrible thing? You're a goat. Um, it was a mountain goat. You don't, you don't play mountain goats to the goat in order to try and make it feel better. Um, you just kill it. It did, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a question of making the goat feel that it's done something wrong. It's a question of getting rid of this thing that is causing harm in the world. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. There, it's, yeah, it's certainly the case. And, you know, their animals and even objects have been put on trial. Um, and they're, they're really interesting cases of the trial of objects. Um, but, the, but nevertheless, um, you know, if you just take it a, another way, you know, if, if you trip on a stone, mostly you're not going to get, you, you may feel angry, but um, you're quickly going to get over your anger at the stone. You, you might get angry at God for letting you trip on the stone, but the stone's just a stone. Um, and the idea of, of large-scale justice, which, which the vividness of that is an interesting contrast to, but the idea of large-scale justice is it doesn't matter that you treat the criminal like an object. Yeah. What? No, um, it's that's that's an important biblical idea, um, but Dante has a very strong sense of personal um, uh, 
guilt and um, to the extent that he wants to talk about and think about that biblical idea of you know punishment you know punishing them that hate him even unto the third and fourth generation and loving those that love him even unto the thousandth generation um, Dante wants to make that appropriate because parents influence children and children are loyal to their parents for bad or for good but it's still individually um, punishment and reward for people individually yeah um, so does Dante address the idea of utilitarian punishment as in like you're not punishing the goat because of the horrible thing you did you're punishing the goat to remove it in society well he's so the he addresses it in the sense that um, that justice I mean I think a lot of this will become clear as we read through it but in the sense that justice requires certain things to happen um, justice so we we were talking about punishment, now we're talking about justice. And there are two, um, more than two, but you could say there are two basic theories of justice. One is that um, all um, crimes should be punished. And the other is that the world should be constituted in as fair a way as possible with the distribution of the things that are available in the world distributed as fairly as possible. Um, so these are often called retributive justice and distributive justice. Retributive justice is if someone wrongs you, retribution is um, um, visited upon them. Distributive justice is um, that stuff in the world um, naturally gets um, parceled out unfairly because that's what nature is like. But what you want to try to do if, if you have a just society is redistribute the stuff in the world in a more or less fair world, in a more or less fair way. Um, you may think that's socialist, especially if you're a Tea Party member. Um, it's not. It's the, any idea of rights is an idea of distributive justice, um, the very rights that the Tea Party people claim to be um, uh, fighting for. Um, those are rights to be free from violence, for example. So the fact that, that the means of harm is um, distributed unevenly, that um, stronger people can hurt weaker people, that on the whole men are able are more able to, to practice successful violence against women than women are able to practice successful violence against men. It just means that on the most basic level, powers of violence are unevenly distributed. And what law is about is is redistributing that, is giving people rights against um, uh, the violence of others, um, giving the state some some people say monopoly on the use of violence. That's distributive justice. So um, one idea of justice is if someone does you harm, they should be harmed back. The other idea of justice is people is that there has to be a general idea of fairness to begin with, um, against which retribution would take place. Um, all of these ideas, in one way or another, we've been talking about since the Iliad. Um, any idea of communication between enemies is an idea where you have to be thinking about both these kinds of justice. What makes people enemies is a sense that injustice has, has occurred. Um, how you deal with that injustice is either to appeal to a general sense of justice or to say, I'm going to get you back for what you've done. It doesn't matter. 
again, the Achilles-Hector interaction, and then the Achilles-Priam interaction is about these things. But the basic idea, just to say this quickly, as I, as I say, I think this will be um, um, clarify itself as we go through Dante, but the basic idea is that hell is a place in which everyone there is a matter of indifference to God as long as they're in hell. Um, now, indifference to God, indifference to justice, these people have caused injustice and they need to be punished. And um, if their punishment is appropriate, as it always is in hell, then you redress the balance. It's not a question of teaching them a lesson. It's a question of making sure the balance of the universe, the pH of the universe, is right. Um, the purgatory is about um, a, a re-establishing of a just balance, not in the universe, but in the individual. That is maybe a good way to understand the difference. That Inferno is about balancing the universe so that the unjust are balanced off by just punishment for their injustice. Purgatory is about a rebalancing of the individual so that any person who's committed a sin will now um, have a balance reestablished within themselves, enabling that sin to be canceled out and enabling them to go to heaven. Um, so Inferno is about the universe. Purgatory is about the individual. Yeah. So, was it the case that there was a particular time of the fall from Eden that the universe was coming out of? Yes, yes. That's one time. Okay. Yeah. Um, there are other times, like the crucifixion of Christ. But yeah, the eating of the apple unbalanced the universe. Um, same is true in Milton, where you'll see that, um, actually Dante says this too, this is an old tradition, but um, Milton is it's very explicit about this that the moment that um, of the fall, after Adam and Eve eat the apple, um, the first thing that happens is the earth itself, which has self-balanced on its center hung, remember that Ovidian and then Miltonic line? Um, the earth itself is jerked out of orbit um, and tilted on its axis. Um, the earth, which had been going around the sun in a perfect circle, not in Dante, in Dante the sun goes around the earth, but in Milton the earth goes around the sun, in a perfect circle and not tilted on its axis so that it's pleasant all the time. So that it's, you know, Northern California, 365 days a year. Um, they eat the fruit, and the first thing that happens is, um, is the Earth's orbit gets derailed. And we get these horrible seasons, Boston winters, Boston summers, um, because of what they did. Um, so that's a specific thing that happens. I never thought of this before, but could that be related to the Persephone myth? Like eating the apple yep. causes season, or eating the pomegranate causes season, eating the apple unbalances the earth causes season. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So um, that's essentially the difference with, between um, Inferno and Purgatory. There's more, there's another thing to be said about Inferno which we'll look at in, I mean, it better be another thing. Well, I guess we're done now. With, um, just read parodies uh, for, no. Um, which we'll get to in a minute when we get to the inscription over the gates of hell, which is um, maybe the first of the really shocking things in um, Dante. I just want to give you a little bit more background, which is 
Um, so as you'll recall, the first line of the Inferno is that um, this all occurred in the middle of the journey of our life. Um, that's the famous first line, um, in the middle of the journey of our life. Um, Dante says, I found myself in a dark wood. Um, our life means he's speaking for all of us. But um, the middle of the journey of his particular life means that he was 35 years old. Why? Because three score and ten, we, we learn from um, Proverbs, are, is the age of man. So um, you get to live to be 70 years old. Halfway through that journey, you're 35 years old. Dante is 35 years old. In the very first line of the poem, he establishes the date of the poem, the date that these events take place, that is 1300. It's not until Purgatory, by the way, that we find out that the narrator of this poem is Dante. That is, Dante himself is the person who is telling this story. That may, it may seem obvious to you that Dante is telling a story about himself, um, but it shouldn't be obvious to you. Um, it, may, it may seem obvious to you only because it's enough a part of the culture that people refer to Dante's journey through Inferno and Purgatory and, and Paradise that you think, sure, I there must be Dante. Um, Dante didn't want you to think that. Um, he wanted it to be something of a surprise. As, and, and so just get at least get a sense of what a surprise it would be. He wanted to be, it to be something of a surprise when he's finally called by name in Purgatorio. And then he's a little bit apologetic about it. And he says, well, I have to say, you know, um, Dante was the name they used, and I have to be accurate. So if you're surprised that it's I, Dante, who am the hero of this story as well as its author, um, yeah, it's a little embarrassing, but it's true. Um, so Dante... The character and Dante the author, frequently people will talk about Dante the character as the pilgrim. If you read the notes or if you read, um, which you shouldn't, um, anything besides the notes, um, remember this is not a research class, um, people will often talk about the pilgrim. Then the pilgrim says to Virgil, blah, 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 um, in order to distinguish the character from the author. Um, the word pilgrim is a word that comes up in purgatory. It doesn't come up in inferno. Um, in Purgatory, Dante and Virgil are described as pilgrims, and that's why some of the um, critics will call him the pilgrim. It could be slightly misleading, and I think what he would want us to do when we're done with it is just to talk about Dante. Um, so that's more or less what I'm going to try to do. Um, Dante is 35 years old. That tells us that this takes place in 1300 because Dante was born in, do the math, when? Yeah, 1265. Um, however, he begins writing this poem several years later, after his exile from Florence. <laughs> now, you can go into very great detail and read the notes and confuse yourself um, a whole lot about um, the travail between Guelphs and Ghibellines and between white and black Ghibellines. You don't need to. All you need to know is that there's I mean, you do need to eventually, but you don't need to now, um, and you don't need to for this course. What you need to know um, is that there's intense, unbelievably vicious, murderous, literally murderous factionalism that's been occurring in Florence now for years. 
and um, prominent families on both sides and one side that is the Ghibellines themselves are splitting into factions and there's betrayal, shifting alliances. Um, it's a really, really, really tricky and murderous place, Florence is. Rich and cultured and tricky and murderous. It's kind of the Sopranos of the 13th century. Um, and Dante was eventually exiled from Florence. Um, and it was in exile that he wrote the Divine Comedy. So here he is. Florence is the center of the world for him, but also a place of unparalleled viciousness for him and a place um, from which he is exiled and he spends the rest of his life in, in exile. And in exile, he writes the Divine Comedy. The Divine Comedy takes place on Easter weekend of 1300. Um, so Dante is 35 years old, and it is now the um, almost 1300 years, um, 1270 years, or 1269 years after the crucifixion, and Dante is um, undertaking this journey on that weekend. Um, so it's However, he is writing, and in another sense, undertaking the journey um, over the course of several years and starting several years later. Because the journey of writing, which is part of what this is about, um, writing, imagining and writing this material, um, the Divine Comedy, in a sense, is a record of its own composition. Um, in a stronger sense than um, anything else we've read so far. Um, that is to say that Dante is undertaking an exploration of the world that he's undertaking, and that exploration is an exploration that he does not by actually walking down into hell and um, riding on the backs of winged creatures and so on, but by writing this poem. Um, that's how poets explore, um, and what Dante is doing is pushing the idea that writing is a kind of exploration way beyond anything that we've seen before. That's a very modern idea. Now the question, again, I'll just say this by way of background, um, the question of when the modern era starts is frequently answered with the idea that it starts in 1492. Um, that is the contact between um, the European and the New Worlds occur, occurs in 1492, and so 1492 is often taken um, as a very obvious milestone um, in which the modern world um, began. Um, some people, however, will go back to 1300, that is to Dante himself, especially if you're doing literature rather than history. Um, the reason for this is that Dante is really the first great poet to write a really great poem, not short poems, not lyrics, not um, poems that are um, personal expressions of feeling or emotion. There are others before him, including others by him. But the first poem that bids to be major, that has the kind of ambition that Virgil did, or that Ovid did, or that um, Homer did, the first 
sort of poem like that written in a modern language. Other people are writing long poems in Latin. Um, there are other long poems in modern languages, but this is the first poem that aims to be compared to Homer and Virgil. Um, lots of poems, I, I should say that there are a lot of um, earlier poems that aim to be compared to Ovid, but that's a little bit different. This is the first poem that really aims to be compared to Homer and Virgil, written in a modern language, written in an Italian that is much closer to modern Italian than, um, I want to say much closer, I can't say for sure, is at least as close to modern Italian as Chaucerian English is to modern English. Um, but Chaucer is writing 100 years after Dante. Yeah. No, I, just, I was wondering if you, well, you said earlier when we were looking at Virgil that Virgil was also something that was trying, uh, a work that was trying to reflect Homer. Yeah, right. So, uh, it and that's also written in, in contemporary modern. Yes, yeah. So Dante, and that's one reason that Virgil is Dante's guide. That is, that what Dante wants us to think is Virgil is to Homer as Dante is to Virgil. Um, but for Dante, that's still, you know, Latin is not a spoken language anymore. It's a learned language, but not a spoken language. Um, and Dante has explicitly, before writing the Divine Comedy, um, he was, as a young man, he was um, quickly recognized as probably um, the best poet in Florence. Um, people loved his poetry. He was, um, um, his poetic powers were obvious, and he thought and wrote a lot about poetry. And one of the things he did was to say that he is um, writing, this comes up in, in the Inferno, writing what he calls a sweet new style, um, the sweet new style of writing poetry in Italian. Um, and writing poetry in Italian, that really is um, not what a very ambitious poet, what very ambitious poets had ever done before. Um, but Dante is explicitly writing the modern language. One thing to know about that is that this is that to write, um, to put it very simply, rhyme was invented around 1000 AD. Um, that is, poems, no serious poem before about the year 1000 um, rhymed. Um, rhyme was not felt in, in the West. Chinese poetry rhymed um, very early. But Western poetry, poetry in Western European languages, um, no serious poet wrote rhyming poetry in a serious poem until about the year 1000 or so. Um, that's when rhyme came in um, as something that people started experimenting with. Um, and Dante, in writing a rhyming poem of this kind of ambition, is also doing something spectacularly new. Um, I should tell you something about the rhymes. We'll, we'll look explicitly at this when, in Purgatorio, we're going to look at Shelley's translation of, of um, part of a canto in Purgatorio. Um, Dante writes in, an, in, in a form that he invented. That form is called, does anyone know? Terza Rima is the name of the form that Dante um, writes in. It's his own invention. Um, other poets, it's an extremely difficult form. Other poets since have used it. Um, the best Terzarima poet in English is Shelley, which is why we're going to look at his um, translation 
of, as I say, part of this um, canto from Purgatorio. Um, it's an extremely difficult form. It's more difficult in English than in Italian, but it's an extremely difficult form in any language. The way terza rima works is that the first stanza, as, as you've noticed by looking at this, you know that all the stanzas are they're three line stanzas, um, except for the last stanza of every of every canto, which is four lines. Um, but they're three line stanzas. The rhyme of the stanza goes like this. So the first stanza is rhymed A B A. You should know and memorize, and um, if you know any poetry in Italian, you should know the beginning of the Divine Comedy, which is Nel mezzo del Camino di Nostra Vita. This is, if you have the Hollander page, um, no, page yeah, page, page two. Um, Nel mezzo del Camino di Nostra Vita, pardon my French. Vitrivai per una selva sciora che la derita via era smarita. So you'll notice just the rhymes. Vita rhymes with smarita. Oscura doesn't rhyme with either of them, even though it has an A at the end. Yeah. yeah. I, I, when I was looking through this, looking at the Italian, it seems that the rhyme scheme was kind of similar to, like, it was like some sort of longer form of a villanelle. Um, well, villanelles do, not exactly, because villanelles, the same rhyme scheme is preserved through, but you're right that there's an alternation, which is a little bit like a villanelle. And if it, the villanelle is a very old form that Dante knew. Um, the villanelle is an old Provençal form, and Dante knew it. But, so there is some similarity, but what Dante, you'll notice the rhyme is Vita Smarita um, in the first stanza. In the second stanza, we have the, the three end words are Gyura, Forte, and Paura. Yeah. Okay. So what happens to the B rhyme in the second stanza? Just look at the page. Sorry? Right. So the first stanza goes A, B, A. The second stanza goes B, C, B. That is, you have obscura here, obscure or dark. Um, cosa giura, a hard thing. And paura, which is fear. So you have obscura, giura, paura. What happens to forte, that is the C rhyme, becomes C, B, C. So forte, the middle line of the second stanza becomes rhymes with morte and scorte in the third stanza. Trovai, the middle line of the third stanza, rhymes with intrai and abandonai in the fourth stanza, etc. So every stanza, it's a little bit like DNA, um, every stanza determines what will happen at least with the outer lines of the next stanza. So what happened after CBC? So that's called terza rima, and it means that the stanzas are all interlocking. Um, it also means that terza rima is hard to end. Um, the way Dante ends it, it's different from the way Shelley ends it, he also does terza rima, but the way Dante ends every canto 
is with a four-line stanza in which what you get is um, essentially, let's say we now got to the end, you would get um, F, G, F, G. And he stops there. Um, so we begin with two rhymes. The A's don't get rhymed, except twice. And then we end with four, F, G, F, G, where the G's get rhymed twice. The F still has the triple rhyme. The G's only have a double rhyme. So we begin with a pair. We end with a pair, but everything else is um, triple. Um, every canto, I mean, excuse me, every book of the Divine Comedy ends with the word stars. So the Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, all three will end with the word stars. Um, and so there's a kind of major rhyme or repetition, even stronger than rhyme, between the end of Inferno, not the end of the line, but the end of the entire 34 cantos of the Inferno, the end of the Purgatorio, and the end of the Paradiso. So I'm you said uh, the Terza Rima is harder to do in English than Italian. Why is that? Because Italian um, has has uh, more words rhyme with each other in Italian than, than English. Okay. Um, some languages are very... Um, some languages rhyme too much for rhymed poetry to be interesting. And that's why Greek and Latin don't rhyme. Um, they're, in fact, rhyme is regarded as a fault in Greek and Latin poetry. Um, it's like, I'm a poet and I don't know it. Um, what Greek and Latin poets actually work to do is avoid rhyme, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, do people know what the word barbarian means? Where it comes, I mean, you know what it means. You know where it comes from? Sorry? No. It's the Greeks heard um, the language of those who didn't speak Greek, especially of, of Northern Europeans, um, it's essentially the same thing as the blah blahbians. What they're hearing is bar bar bar. This is how they speak. They just go bar 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 bar. Um, and so it's it's in Greek. It's the equivalent of saying the blah blahbians. Um, but the very idea is that rhyme is a blah 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 or a bar 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 or a barbarian um, kind of poetry for the Greeks. It's just too much um, jingling of the same sounds. Milton will say the same thing. Milton explains. Why Paradise Lost doesn't rhyme, and he says it's a it's it's the invention of a barbarous age. Um, it's just blah 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 repetition of the same sounds. Um, English is not as um, as dense with rhyming words as Italian is. Um, Italian has more density of rhyme, but it's sufficiently sparse that rhyming is still hard. Um, in English, it's harder. Um, Rhyming in terza rima in Italian is certainly as hard as rhyming in English, though. Um, rhyming in terza rima in English is very hard. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'm wondering, did Brown use the format? Yes, he did. No, those are just triplets. That's, a, that, that's an AAA rhyme. However, he does use this form. I'm glad you asked. He does use this form in an amazing poem called... It's actually worth looking at, called Thamorous Marching, um, which is, who's Thamorous? Yeah, so who is he? Uh, 
You convey knowledge and it's water in a sieve. <laughs> First day of class, Thamorous. Oh, oh. Right, and ruined his memory. Yeah. So Browning has an amazing poem called Thamorous Marching, which he writes in Terzarima, um, partly based on um, Dante, but probably even more based on Shelley. Um, which is Thamorous on his way to the contest with the Muses. It's one of Browning's late poems, um, and a great Terzarima poem in English. Um, really, the the three or there maybe I can think of maybe four great Terzarima um, poems in English, or poets who've written great poems in Terzarima. Um, there may be more, but Shelley was the best. Um, Browning does it, Yeats does it, and um, James Merrill does it. Um, and their examples of it are, are really quite amazing. Um, but it's a very, very difficult form in English. Yeah? Right, so another question. Do you also know what the dream itself means in Italian? Triple like, run. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay. It, and as I say, it's Dante's invention. Um, the Does anyone know Shelley's Ode to the West Wind? A bit. Okay, well... But it's, it's like almost as famous as Ozymandias and even greater. Um, Ode to the West Wind is an ode to um, the West Wind. Oh. Um, it begins, a wild west wind, thou breath of autumn's being. Anyhow, it's, a, it's an ode written in Terza Rima sonnets, um, which I think is Shelley's invention. That is the, um, every, it's in five, it's five sonnets. Most people don't even notice their sonnets, but it's five sonnets addressed to the wind. Um, that are connected, that are linked. Um, and they're rhymed A, B, A, B, C, B, um, C, D, C, E, um, e F, E, G, G. That is, you have um, four three-line stanzas followed by a couplet. Um, so instead of getting um, F, G, F, G for Shelley, what you get is E, F, E, um, G, G. Um, and he does that five times in Ode to the West Wind. Um, so that's probably the most famous single Terzarima poem in English, um, is what Shelley does with it in Ode to the West Wind. Um, Dante is obsessed, as you may already have guessed, with the numbers three especially, and also with the number nine, um, as three squared. Um, 27, he doesn't, he doesn't know from cubes. He should, but he doesn't. Um, but three and nine um, are numbers that are structuring his poetry and structuring the Divine Comedy. He, they're, they're just very important to see how many triplets there are in the Divine Comedy, all the way from form, from the DNA of the poem, the Terza Rima, to the fact that it's in three parts, to the fact that although he wants it to be exactly 100 cantos long, which is a little bit hard if you're also interested in the number three, since three isn't a factor of 100. Um, he also wants three to be the basic structuring um, form of the poem. So essentially, the Inferno begins with an introductory canto, where he finds himself in a dark wood, and then it is followed by 33 cantos, which, the, which are the Inferno proper. So what you should think of the Inferno is that there's an introductory canto, which is an introduction to the entire divine comedy, and that's canto one. 
um, and it um, ends with his saying, this is on page, um, lots of notes, page 11, um, it ends with Virgil um, and Dante speaking, and Dante says to Virgil, Poet, I entreat you by the God you did not know, which is why Virgil is in limbo, so that I may escape this harm and worse, lead me to the realms you've just described, that I may see St. Peter's Gate, and those you tell me are so sorrowful. Then he set out, and I came on behind him. So that is, then he set out, and I came on behind him. That's the moment where we transition into the poem proper. The introduction is over. And now we get 33 cantos about hell that follow. Um, and the very end of that describes how they go through the center of the earth and get through to the other side. That is followed by 33 cantos in Purgatorio. And can you guess how many cantos in Paradiso? 33. Very good. 33 cantos in Paradiso. Um, so you have three books of the Divine Comedy, each book written in Terza Rima, and each book containing 33 cantos, where for Dante, the 11 part isn't important. It's the three part in just the number 33, 33. I exaggerate when I say the 11 part isn't important. Um, each line is 11 syllables long. That is the... Um, the poetic form that Dante is using, um, which is more or less iambic, it's iambic with what's very frequent in Italian, what's called feminine endings. Um, so that in English, you expect iambic pentameter to be more or less 10 syllables long. In Italian, you expect it to be 11 syllables. So the, the three times, so, so essentially, every typical stanza of the Divine Comedy has 33 syllables, and the Divine Comedy itself, the afterlife is divided into um, three books, each of which has 33 cantos. Yeah. Oh, doesn't each segment of the afterlife also have nine um, yes. circles? Yes, right, and hence the number nine. Um, that can get a little tricky in Purgatorio because there's seven deadly sins, and he wants to try to turn seven into nine, so he succeeds. That's his work. Um, <laughs> If you're Dante, you can make seven and nine the same. Um, you may feel that there's a little bit of monkeying around, but, you know, that's poetry for you. Um, one other thing, then, is it's probably, to get the structure of the Inferno, it's really, if you look at the Hollanders, um, this is on, uh, just before the introduction begins, so it would be Roman numeral. They don't actually tell you what Roman numeral it is, but 23, 22, 21... Yeah, so it would be page Roman numeral 21, um, and it's, it's this. So they give you an illustration of hell, which is more or less a standard illustration. Different artists um, you know, give you different perspectives on it, um, all based on what Dante says. Dante didn't draw a picture of it. Um, but what you can see is that hell, that it's certainly the case, and you'll see this reading it, that hell is a kind of spiral, that what happens in the Inferno is that there's a spiral inwards as he descends towards the center of the earth. It's like going down the cone of a volcano. Um, you go deeper and deeper, um, and you spiral inward as you do it. Yeah? At this point, we didn't know the world was round, did they? No. 
Oh, no, I'm sorry, of course. Yeah, he knew the world was round. It was known since antiquity that the world was round. It wasn't But it was Columbus. kind of forgotten for a little while. Not really. No? Okay. No. No, no, no. It wasn't common knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. That is, it's not something that the average person knew, but all learned people knew that. Oh. Um, the Greeks had figured out that the world was round. Didn't um, they calculate pretty accurately? They, they calculated pretty accurately uh, yeah, yeah, they were within. Um, the the Greeks, I think, were within about twenty percent accuracy, um, and by Elizabethan times, they were within about ten percent accuracy um, of its actual circumference. Yeah, they did it with trigonometry. Um, that is, they looked at the difference between the angles of shadows of posts that went straight up in two different places. That the Greeks did this. That they they looked at posts on the same day, two hundred miles apart from each other. And by looking at the difference between the length of the shadows that the post cast, they could figure out the difference in angle that the sun was hitting those poles from, which showed how much um, curvature there was between those two posts. With ships. Well, no, Columbus did it with ships. No, I mean, not discovered. I mean, when the ship comes in, you see less and more and more and more of the ship went. Yeah, yeah, and when it goes out, the last thing to disappear is a sail. But they, they, I don't think they could calculate with that. They had to measure shadows to calculate. Did they also calculate distance by marching an army unit from one position to the other? Yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know how they measured miles, but that makes sense. Um, but they had a pretty accurate sense of how far away the posts were, and then they just measured how long the shadows the post cast were on a particular day. Um, anyhow, they, they've known the world was round since at least 400 BC or so, probably earlier. Um, but yeah, that was well known. Um, Columbus, actually, one reason that he set off across the Atlantic is that he was actually pretty ignorant of the circumference of the world, and he thought it was much smaller than it actually was. Had he known more um, and not just kind of eyeballed it, he never would have thought that he could sail to India. Um, you know, he only got 3,000 out of, out of what, like 18,000 miles um, across. Is 18, no, it's 6, 3, and 3. So it, it was really a 12,000-mile journey that he thought, yeah, 3,000 miles ought to do it. Um, and that was just insane, but he was lucky. Um, or unlucky, depending on how you see it. Um, yeah, Dante knew the world was round. What he, I'm sorry, what, what I interrupted you and what I thought you were going to ask is, did he know anything about the Southern Hemisphere? The answer is no. Um, basically, the Southern Hemisphere was more or less an unknown world to people in Italy. And um, so that he's ima- he imagines the Southern Hemisphere as much as he imagines the center world. Imagining what the Southern Hemisphere is like, by the way, goes all the way up to the 19th century. That is to say, of course everyone had traveled into um, all over the world by the 19th century um, and by the time of of great ships, but no one really knew what the South Pole was like, and Edgar Allan Poe's only novel, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, imagines a journey to the South Pole. Um, And it's completely wrong. Um, what he thinks is that as you get closer and closer to the South Pole, suddenly the water starts getting warm again, and that that um, you return to a kind of tropical climate, which has to do with with hot springs and volcanoes, and that in fact the that um, 
the the pim meets of these very strange um, people in boats who speak in a language that he doesn't understand, and he has no idea what they're saying, but it turns out to be biblical Hebrew, although Pym never realizes that, um, because they're directly descended from the original inhabitants of the Garden of Eden. Um, it's quite an amazing fantasy, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. Um, but speculation, once you know the world is round, of course you're interested in what's on the other side of the world. And so what Dante um, in... Um, Inferno puts on the other side of the world is this mountain called Purgatory. Um, and so one of the things that he has is Virgil and Dante are the first Europeans, actually the, the second, Odysseus does it before them, um, but the first um, living Europeans to see what's on the other side of the world. But it's science fiction. Um, it's, it's important and useful to read a lot of this as science fiction. There is a sense in which the sci if you like SF, the kind of imagination of other worlds, of things that you would never have, have um, come upon without reading it, um, Dante is the inventor of that. Um, he's really thinking about what would, it like to, what would it be like to go underground and go to the center of the earth? What would, it, what would things be like there? What would it be like? One of the most amazing things that happens is the crossing over the boundary of the actual center of the earth. What would that be like? What would it be like to get to the other side? And then the most amazingly science fiction fantasy part of the whole Divine Comedy is Paradiso, um, which you will, um, I'll just say you, won't, you don't have a clue how different that's going to be from anything you've ever read before. But Dante knew that he was writing something vastly different from anything you read before. Anyhow, the important thing to know about this chart, so what you see is this is the, this is the topography of the underworld, and, and we circle inward and inward to the center of the earth. That's um, just reasonably important to picture it, but it doesn't matter that much. What matters is that the farther down we go, the more ruined the um, underground landscape that they're in is, the more it shows ruin and devastation and destruction. Um, and it's a pretty amazing, they're broken bridges, for example, all around. It's a pretty amazing description. But you'll see that description. You don't have to worry about, well, is he circling to the, I mean, scholars worry. You, don't you, whether he's circling to the left or to the right. What's important and what, um, what graphically is laid out as nicely as it should be is this diagram of the circles, which um, what you'll see is the, as the more we get towards the center of hell, the slower we proceed from circle to circle. The circles start getting divided into subdivisions called bulgia or pockets within the circles. But this subdivision of the circles from zero, which is um, limbo, or the neutrals, um, one is limbo, zero is the neutrals, all the way down to the ninth circle. And what descent, what kinds of sins you descend through. So they very helpfully, but this is, and correctly, this is agreed on by everyone, point out that the first set of sins are sins of incontinence. Incontinence are lust, gluttony, avarice, and anger. That is, sins in which people can't control their own feelings um, and act on their feelings. 
um, I must have sex with you, or I must pig out, or I must um, make myself rich, or um, I am just so pissed that, that I'm feeling that way all the time. Those, in a way, are sins against the self, all those sins. Following that are sins of violence, which are worse than sins of incontinence. So the first are sins of failure of self-restraint. The second group, major grouping in hell are sins of violence, where you harm others and not only yourself. And those are worse. Following that, still worse, are sins of fraud, sins of dishonesty, where not only do you harm others, but you harm others without telling them that you're harming them. So that's where you will start finding people like Odysseus and Sinon. And then worst of all, worse even than fraud, is treachery, which is fraud against people who are entitled to trust you. So it's not just that you convince them to trust you, but they're entitled to trust you. Treachery um, of brother against brother. One area, one of the areas of the sins of treachery is the, is the place called Kanai, named after Cain, who has killed Abel. Another is, is Judea, Judei, named after Judas, who betrayed Christ. So the worst, the best sins, the least evil ones, are sins in which self-restraint fails, that is, sins of incontinence, and those are circles one through five. Violence are circles six and seven. Um, simple fraud, that is um, um, cheating people through counterfeiting and things like that, that's circle eight. And treachery is the last circle, that's circle nine. Yeah. Seems that the last two would also be more, be more severe because of premeditation. Yes. Yeah, no, the, the sins get worse and worse. Wasn't Satan supposed to be in the middle because he, like, betrayed God? Yes, exactly. 